Welcome to Corpus Christi Anglican Church. I'm Morgan, our planting clergy. Our vision of this church is to become a common people in common prayer for uncommon transformation. This podcast is where you will hear our sermons and other teachings that have happened at Corpus Christi. We primarily serve the region of Springfield, Franconia, and Kingstown. We're glad that you're here. Thanks for taking time to listen. Here's the message. Well, good morning again. It's good to see you. Uh, I'm Father Morgan Reed, the vicar here at Corpus Christi Anglican Church. Uh, It's a delight to be here worshiping with you on um, this holiday weekend this morning uh, with lovely fall weather. It's nice to see the trees finally changing color. Let me pray for us as we begin. In the name of God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be always acceptable in your sight my Lord, my rock and redeemer. Amen. Well, speaking of fall foliage, uh, um, we harvested some carrots the other night, and it was a a lovely opportunity to make room for some winter veggie. We love to garden in our household. It's one of the things that uh, we really have enjoyed doing for the last five or six years, way before our son was born. And one year, several years ago, I decided to try my hand at growing cucumbers which was uh, really interesting. And we hit the right year because that year we had a ton of rain at just the right time. And it felt like cucumber vines were like sponges. And every time there was a big rain, I got like five more huge cucumbers. It was awesome. And, and so that year um, I would go out and there would be like one to three new large cucumbers every single day. And, and just waiting for me to pick them off the vine. I ran out of things to do with cucumbers. I would eat them in salads. I ate a lot of pickles that year. Like, I don't know how many pickles you can eat. Um, but it, it ended up being only me eating pickles after a certain point, And one can only have so many pickles. Uh, but, you know, part of the way through the summer, something weird happened with our cucumber vines. I, I saw this little tiny uh, yellow beetle with stripes on it. Uh, and that was a cucumber beetle. And I saw one, then I saw two, then I saw holes starting to show up in the leaves. And then all the leaves started shriveling, and eventually the vine itself went from green to brown, shriveled up. The cucumbers got really ugly, and they weren't producing anymore. And so, sadly, I had to tear out the plant by the roots. And I had to do that because I didn't want any of the bacteria from the vine rotting and spreading into other plants that I had there. It was sad. It was frustrating. But it wasn't terribly sad or frustrating because I didn't really do a ton to invest in the life of that plant. Like, it took off on its own. I didn't have to work that hard. I cannot imagine what it is like to be a farmer where you are having to spend your days making sure that your crops grow properly to build your livelihood on, on a large scale only to have your crop devastated by either bad weather or some sort of insect or some sort of bacteria that gets into your plants. I can't even imagine that level of frustration or devastation, but that level of frustration is what our passage addresses today in the book of Isaiah. In Isaiah 5, we hear a really strange beginning to a love song. It's it's about somebody who is planting a vineyard, Uh, And it's a metaphor for a romantic relationship. It would have been heard that way by those who are hearing it. And all of a sudden, in this seemingly gentle love song, uh, the Lord's voice breaks in and the love song is interrupted. And um, there is a message about 
the frustration of the, the farmer at the vineyard. And, and so one of the lessons that I take from this passage, because it's not easy to think about Old Testament oracles of judgment for our everyday life. Um, that, no, that's a good devotional book idea. Uh, but anyway, so that, that, this kind of passage can be really difficult to ask the question, what do I take from this? And one of the lessons I take from this passage is that God, God's desire for us is to have a deep abiding life with him to become the foundation for what we do. The things that we do for the Lord, the things that we do with the Lord have as their foundation this deep abiding life with him. <clears throat> And so in this passage, we begin with somebody who's writing a love song about somebody else, somebody who's planting a vineyard. And it is a love song, like you would find something like this in the Song of Solomon. Uh, And people would have heard it, they would have thought of this as a metaphor for the Lord and for his relationship with his covenant people. And so there is a beloved one, this person who plants a vineyard, um, who here stands for the Lord. He's planted this vineyard, which stands for the covenant people of Israel and Judah. And he seems to have planted this vineyard on a very fertile hill, is what the text says, um, where it has the right amount of sun. You know, vineyards need wind, so it has the right amount of wind. Uh, It's got the right amount of rain. It's got the right amount of soil and, and nutrients. Everything about this was right for the vine to grow good grapes. Everything's perfect. And, and he cleared the vineyard of any large stones that might be there where it would block the, the vines from taking root. And then he didn't just take any old vine. He, he plucked the, the choicest of vines from other places to plant into this beautiful soil. He's done everything necessary. And he built a watchtower in the middle of the vineyard so that he could survey the vineyard from above and make sure that No uh, rodents were getting any grapes. No birds were getting any grapes. He dug a wine vat to hold all the fermenting grape juice. But after years of work, after years of doing all this preparation work, he's ready to receive the fruits of his labor. Um, And he's waiting for it to produce grapes that are going to make wonderful grape juice for wonderful wine. But by the end of verse 2... What we find out is all it does is yield wild grapes, which, I mean, you can kind of imagine it like this. Have you all ever seen those beautiful little um, pepper berries or uh, what are they? What else are they called? Porcelain berries. They're those ones in the fall that change colors where they kind of look green to blue to purple to red uh, all in one vine. Like imagine something like that. Those are actually related to grapes. And so if you were to taste them, they're mostly seed inside and they're sour. Imagine that, like, after all this, all he's gotten is these little ugly porcelain berries that don't do anything, uh, and they're not even pretty to look at. You know, porcelain berries are at least beautiful, um, but they're useless for wine production. And so this is where the love song ends. It's weird. The audience changes. God comes into the dialogue through the prophet, and now he addresses the covenant people. So the Lord poses a question. What more is there that I could do for my vineyard that I haven't done yet? What else could I have done? There's nothing else I could have done. God gave that vineyard every single opportunity to produce good grapes. And because the vineyard became unproductive, what he decides to do in this passage is he removes the fences from the vineyard so that the animals can come in. 
He intentionally makes it this barren wasteland so that nobody else can harvest anything that comes from it. Only weeds are going to grow there. And he says that he's going to even withhold rain from it. That's where you know now it's the Lord. It's not just a normal uh, weird love song. Like the Lord is giving a prophecy. I'm going to withhold rain from this. Um, and there's this word play in verse 7. So if you read Hebrew, it says, you know, I looked for mishpat and I got mizpah, which means I looked for justice, but what I got was violent bloodshed. I looked for tzedakah, and all I got was tzedakah, which means I looked for righteousness, but I only found the cry from the oppressed. And so that word play in verse 7 highlights this chasm that exists between God's expectation for this vineyard and what God is actually experiencing in the vineyard. And before we think about this for the church, let's remember that there are more ways to take this incorrectly than helpfully. And, And so remember... With the Israel, there was a covenant and a, a legal relationship of the nation to Yahweh, uh, which had been established on Mount Sinai. It's very legal. We we read this both we we read this passage through the lens of the new covenant, but also through the lens of how the canon itself developed. So when you think about the Psalm that we prayed together, Psalm eighty. Um, that presents us this exilic prayer where Israel has now gone into exile in Judah and, and they're praying for God to restore the vineyard. So in the development of time, the development of canon, they recognize it's happened to us. God restore the vineyard. They're not hopeless. Um, there is hope for the vineyard, even in first Isaiah. So we heard today about, you know, this prophecy of the destruction of the vineyard. But if you go to Isaiah 27, We have a salvation oracle, not a judgment oracle. And in the salvation oracle, it says, in that day, a pleasant vineyard, sing of it. I, the Lord, am its keeper. And so we find the redemption of the vineyard even in 1st Isaiah. So the rest of this song is about God redeeming the vineyard and making atonement for Israel's sins. So let's talk about what the passage isn't saying then. Uh, Do not think that what this passage is saying is that if you are struggling with sin, that you are risking God abandoning you and ensuring your destruction. That is not what this passage is saying. Remember 1 Peter 2.24. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. God has done a lot to bring you into covenant relationship. This is not threatening you that if you are still giving him sins that are coming up, that he is going to ensure your destruction and abandon you. It says, by his wounds, you have been healed in First Peter. So repentance is always available to us in Christ. And as that, there's a collect in our prayer book that um, famously prays, God is more ready to hear than we are to pray. God is, God's disposition to us is that he is more ready to hear than we are to pray. And so I don't want us to um, take this passage and live in constant fear of divine abandonment. Um, God has done too much on your behalf for you to live with that kind of fear. So second, I don't want to think that if you're suffering, that God's destruction must be on you because of your sin. There's not a cause-effect relationship here uh, for you. Christ committed no sin, remember, and there was no deceit found in his mouth. Um, And yet Jesus uh, even says, if you're going to be 
in order to be my disciple, you have to take up your cross daily and follow me. And so suffering does not necessarily correlate to divine wrath. Um, And I will say, God does not delight in our suffering. Uh, You know, there's sometimes this idea that like, oh, when I'm really suffering, like that's when I'm most loved by God. Actually, um, God, God does not take delight in the fact that you are suffering when you read the Psalms. What he delights is your redemption and your rescue from suffering. Uh, Suffering is inevitable, but that is not God's delight. God's delight is to rescue us from it. And and I think the Psalms make that abundantly clear. And so the scriptures also describe the reality of of the, the righteous will suffer even for doing what's good. Right. So so I don't want us to think that if we're experiencing what feels like suffering, Um, an abandonment that we're necessarily being punished for sin. There's not a cause-effect relationship for us. So we've talked about what the passage isn't saying. What could it be saying? Uh, I think there is an encouragement in Isaiah 5 for us. And this is an encouragement to, to rest deeply in what pleases God. Remember, God had done all those things, um, for them. And God has done so much for us. And that is something to rest in. Over and over to rest in. In that first Peter passage that I just quoted, Christ bore our sins in his body on the tree so, so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. There's a, there's a positive to this. Not just fear of judgment, but actually what is God freeing you up for? What is God freeing you to? Um, The individuals, the leaders, the corporate body of Israel should have been asking, to what end did their nation actually exist? And then they should have acted in ways that were consistent with that. Unfortunately, they had adopted practices, which are explained later in this chapter that we didn't read, that did not show God's justice or his equity or his love for the nations or his charity with one another. They had adopted so many things like that that... um, that we find out about later in this passage. Ultimately, they were resting in something that was not God's pleasure. They were resting in their pleasure um, and comfort and and not God's pleasure. The appearance of success um, without the means of what God was establishing. So they they were resting in a certain idea of success and image without resting in God himself. And so we should wrestle with what resting in, in God's pleasure looks like for ourselves and for our household. Again, not a threat of judgment, but it's an invitation to resting in what God might have for you in, in freedom with Christ, knowing how much he's done in Christ for each and every one of us. So thinking about households, I was thinking of an example from our own, uh, well, a hypothetical. We don't necessarily do this, but thinking about households, whether you live by yourself or with others, um, you know, let's say, hypothetically, in, in our household, we want to uh, do a few things. We want to live circumspectly. We want to make disciples who make disciples. We want to forgive authentically, respect the image of God in one another. Um, and, and then the question is, if that is the overarching vision, what have I done to work backwards uh, in asking how do how is what we are doing contributing to that overarching vision for the household? What are the daily activities that contribute 
to this vision for what God might do. If we want to live circumspectly, are we making time for conversations with one another? Are we making time uh, for prayer? I don't know if you're a writer, but if are you making space to write, to read? Uh, reflection, uh, times for this um, circumspection. If, if we want to make disciples who make disciples, that's another question too. Have we given thought to what it means to even follow Jesus? Like, what does that look like? If you were to put a definition on it, describe it to another, pe- another person. In our household, we want to make disciples. What does it mean to follow Jesus? What would it look like if we were following Jesus in our house? Uh, if we want to respect the image of God in one another, do we consider the ways that we're tempted to shame one another? Do we consider the ways that we are uh, tempted to dehumanize one another in our struggles, our proclivities, our arguments and patterns? If we want to forgive authentically, forgiving authentically, not on a shallow surface, it's fine, uh, but like doing the real hard work of forgiveness. Do we have rhythms that help us articulate the things that were done to us that were wrong? You know, you get the idea. So take whatever picture you're thinking of for faithfulness and ask how we worked backwards to see if our rhythms match that. I was actually thinking a lot about this week. Uh, these, this kind of um, vision of discipleship when I think not just of the household but of the church um, you know I still haven't fully formulated it but if you look at you know we're still a church plant if you look at church planting back in the 90s and early 2000s they often talk about the benchmarks of the church planting ABCs anybody know what those are? Attendance, Expansion. kind of, but not. That's not the B, but that's a good one. Yes, attendance, building, building. Mm-hmm. close enough. Cash. <laughs> <laughs> How's your church doing? Attendance, buildings, and cash. Right, like those were the benchmark, and it's no wonder that discipleship would be shallow then if those are the benchmarks. Notice that that is a, a an incomplete marker of discipleship. There's a way that all those things can be really helpful benchmarks, right? Like attendance should grow. Um, that that should, should happen. But that's not the main benchmark. You can grow an unhealthy church, right? Um, buildings are helpful. Uh, are they done so that you can have permanence in a space to minister to a community? Or are they a marker of pride, right? Like cash is helpful. You need money to do the things the church needs to do. Um, that, is, that is a good thing. But um, if you stockpile too much, you might be missing ministry opportunities. Right? So all these things, you can, you can build an unhealthy church with those ABCs. Uh, or you can build a healthy church with those ABCs. So it's not a complete picture of discipleship. And this is where I've been thinking about it for a church. I'm, I'm trying to find new benchmarks of a healthy church. Uh, and maybe it's different depending on the church, the denomination, the size you're at. I don't know. But, um, for example, I was thinking about how many people are making it a habit to ask for prayer from one another on a regular basis. Like, I get really excited when I hear somebody say, hey, you know, how is so-and-so? I was praying for them this week. Right? I love to hear that kind of thing. Or how many individuals are initiating ministry ideas or leading teams? Um, if someone says, yeah, you know what? I have this formation group idea I want to try out. 
Awesome. I love hearing that. You know, like, are people initiating ideas? How many people are participating in groups outside the Sunday service? Um, you know, and, and how many people are regularly giving financially? Not necessarily a number, but, you know, is there a frequency to it? Um, is there a connection between how they view their money and how they view the ministry of the church? Are adults and older children being baptized? Um, are new babies being born into the congregation? In other words, that's a mark of intergenerationality, uh, which I would think would be a good benchmark as a church plant. Are we gaining new children's ministry volunteers? Like uh, people of all ages being willing to work with children of all ages. How do we measure things like vulnerability, safety, willingness to serve, sacrificial giving, relational wholeness, and growing in the love of Christ for ourselves and for our neighbors. I don't know. I have something I'm still working out, but I don't want the old benchmarks. Uh, they're, they're, they can be helpful, but they're not markers of discipleship. When I think of what is a vision for discipleship in the church? What does it mean to follow Jesus in the church? Um, so I would love you know all those things and more to be markers of a healthy church plant, way more than attendance and buildings and cash. And I think, to tie it back to Isaiah 5, I think that's what it means for a vineyard to bear good fruit. Like those kinds of benchmarks, people following Jesus and that changing lives, that those are good benchmarks of, of the vineyard bearing fruit. And I wonder if this vineyard was behind Jesus' teaching in John 15. How is it possible to bear good grapes? Rather than a negative question like, what happens if the vineyard doesn't bear good grapes? We don't want to live in that kind of fear. Let's ask the question, how do we, those who are the vine, uh, in some sense, those that God has done so much for, how do we bear good fruit? How do we bear good fruit? Jesus' answer is to abide in the vine. He says, I'm the vine, and my father is the vine dresser. I think it's probably an allusion to this passage. And then later he says, I'm the vine, and you are the branches. Whoever abides in me, and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit, for apart from me, you can do nothing. So when I read Isaiah 5, and I read this judgment oracle, I want to reframe this question in light of what Jesus is saying in John 15. How do we bear good fruit? How do we be these branches? Um, the answer is abiding in Christ. Living life with Jesus, resting in what Jesus has done for us. And if there's anything to fear, it shouldn't be God's abandonment, but that our striving for having a kingdom impact would actually outpace our actual capacity to abide in Jesus. We need to start with abiding in Jesus and then worry about the effects later. And the effects in some ways are not in our control. So God's desire is for our life with him to become the foundation of what we do for him. Again, not fearing destruction or judgment, but fearing that the things that we're trying to accomplish would actually outpace our capacity of life with Jesus. So one encouragement for this week for all of us, including myself, I'm going to try and do this as well, is define, describe what does discipleship look like in your household? If you could put a sentence to that, a couple sentences, a paragraph to that, you know, take some time and write that out. A question you might ask is, you know, if, if we all became faithful followers of Jesus in this space, 
what would our lives look like in this house? In all the different facets of what you do each day. If God would grant us that, what would that look like? What are we aiming for? It can be one sentence, a paragraph, but I think it's a helpful exercise. And the reason why I'm encouraging that is because um, this passage in Isaiah 5, even though it is an awkward love song um, slash oracle of judgment, I think it's also an invitation to care more deeply about how you and I are being formed um, than what we are uh, doing for or in the name of God. Um, Or even images of success from the ways that biblical theology unfolded. We know that in Christ, the places where God might feel distant, he's actually present. He's still present with us. And those might feel like dark nights of the soul or a wilderness is how the scripture can describe it. But God is still powerful to form us and to walk with us in in those moments. He's big enough to hear cries of lamentation. And he's the one who, when we read the scriptures, yearns to wipe away every tear from our eyes. And he's the one who is more ready to hear than we are to pray. And so let's come to the Lord. Let's ask him to form us as people who are following Jesus and accepting his love for us so that we can become a testimony uh, within the space that God's called us to and among others around us. And let's become a people who have the spiritual and emotional capacity to do the works of God rather than letting the works of God outpace our ability to rest in Jesus. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, in you we live and we move and we have our being. So we humbly pray you so to guide and govern us by your Holy Spirit, that in all the cares and occupations of our life, we may not forget you, but may remember that we are ever walking in your sight through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen.